Tomorrow, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift Vieira's Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tomorrow, only on Disney+. Plus. You said nearly 95 million people are pre-diabetic. Out of that 95 million, nearly half don't even know it. What can you do today to prevent that risk later on in life? Welcome to Fill in the Blanks. I'm very excited about my guest today because my good friend, Dr. John White, is joining me. You've heard me talk about and to Dr. White before. He's the chief medical officer at WebMD. Earlier this year, Dr. White published a book entitled Take Control of Your Diabetes Risk. Now, that's an interesting title. And that's what we're going to have in our conversation today. He's not saying take control of your diabetes. He's actually saying take control of your diabetes risk. That's important because there are things you can do, and we're going to talk about that today. And you may think, well, I tell you what, this isn't particularly relevant to me. (laughs) Hell, you need to listen to what we have to say for a couple of reasons, because it's relevant to a whole lot more people than think it is. And what we're talking about is relevant to managing overall health as well as diabetes. And there are some real powerful tools in here for managing your overall health. Now, he's going to share some really straightforward information and really equip all of you with strategies to help on a journey to better health, including knowing the causes of the different types of diabetes, learning the role food, exercise, and sleep play, and understanding the relationship between diabetes, heart disease, and cancer. But again, this also is important information for managing your health overall. There is a tremendous mind-body connection that we're going to talk about, and all of this has been accentuated by the pandemic as we emerge from that, we need to do it and do it right. So he's here today to empower you with strategies for a better health journey. So Dr. White, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Dr. Phil. It's good to see you again. We always have provocative conversations, which I enjoy. We do. And uh, we've said we should let more people hear our provocative conversations. I wish that uh, we had a microphone fly on the wall in some of our conversations because they get pretty candid sometimes, which has really been thought-provoking to me and influenced some show topics we've done, even since you and I talked in D.C. not long ago. Absolutely. It's been really great. Before we get into the specifics of diabetes in particular, the truth of the matter is this has to do with managing overall health. And if you manage your overall health, you're managing your diabetes risk. Would that be a fair statement? Absolutely. You referenced the pandemic and what the pandemic has taught us. At the end of the day, all we have is our health. And what can you do to control your own risk factors for disease? You know, we spend so much time 
you know, just focus on jobs and family. And then it's not until we actually get a disease, till we get cancer, till we get heart disease, till someone tells us, oh, wait, you've got diabetes. And people are like, whoa, what, how, how did that happen? And, and that's why it's so important to talk about what can you do today to prevent that risk later on in life? Yeah. The reason I say I want to talk about managing your overall health first, and then we'll funnel it down specifically to your diabetes risk, is because as we're coming out of this pandemic, and I hope we're coming out of this pandemic, I had Dr. Redfield on the other day, the sure, former, former head of the CDC. He's predicting that we're going to see some real spikes as the weather gets cold different mutations and all, and we can talk about that in a minute. But the truth is, as we're coming out of the pandemic, as a population, we're probably in not so good a shape as we were before because a lot of people were sedentary. Sure. More so during the pandemic than they were before. And you would think maybe it had been different because people had more time to exercise, get out and walk, do things. But I think maybe we're not in as good a shape as we were going in. So we've got some ground to make up, perhaps. You know, I'm part of that group, Dr. Phil, um, on Zoom calls all day, doing a lot of interviews. And, and I'll tell you, I'm wearing a, a Fitbit because I got it during the pandemic. So I was gaining weight and I put it on. And, the, you know, the first week I was averaging, I'm not joking, like, 2,000, 3,000 steps. And I thought, this has got to be wrong. It says, don't wear it on your dominant hand. I was. <laughs> so, so I switched it. And it was still like 2,500. And I thought, you know, it's probably right. I, I don't move too far from my office to the living room right. to upstairs. But I had to make that conscious effort to, to rethink and really refocus on, on what I'm doing. You know, most diseases by and large, are caused by lifestyle, which is your point, that the factors that we're going to talk about here apply to other diseases. There are some nuances and some exceptions, but genetics doesn't cause most conditions that we get. It, it, it's pretty small. Most is caused by our daily choices over time. Over time. Absolutely. Which is right. So if somebody has a bad day eating things that aren't good for them, that's not going to be outcome determinative for their health. If they smoke one cigarette, which I've never done and I've never, never had planned either. to, yeah. mm -hmm. but making a bad choice on food or drink or whatever on one day or splurging on a vacation, it's not going to be outcome determinative for their life. We're talking about patterns across time because that sets a lot of things in your body and it takes a long time. Now, I grew up with three sisters and they used to say they eat one cheeseburger, it goes straight to their hips and takes six months to get rid of. And I don't think it's that bad, but I, I have think two we, sisters, by the way. That's probably why we get along. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We were foxhole yeah. buddies. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, what are you doing? What do you mean? I'm Just keep it simple. I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Brav Bros. Two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Brav Bros. No. Oh. Dude, stop with the voice. Just the vo keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. 
All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Rob bros. Good job. On Oops! The Podcast, join me, comedian Giulio Gallarotti, as I examine everyday life, the mistakes, the bad decisions, the goals, the jokes, the social engagements, and all things in between. I'm joined every week by producer and personal confidant, Ryan Lynch, various other comedians for witty, candid, and intoxicating conversation. Our listeners love Oops! for sophisticated banter, aka your mom could listen, and many feel like they're in the room with us chopping it up with old pals. You can find every episode of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. The truth is we picked up some patterns during the pandemic of being more sedentary, maybe eating differently, not dealing with stress as well, maybe not being as active in catharsis for our emotions and all. And so I think we've come out compromised mentally, emotionally, physically. So I think we need to make a conscious effort at this point, not just to say, okay, I'll get back to my normal self now and everything will be back to normal. I think we need to make a conscious effort to reset everything and not just kind of let it drift back up to where it was, but instead make a conscious effort. Intentional exercise, intentional diet choices, intentional behaviors that will get us back more quickly and more directly to where we need to be. And if people will do that, I think they can close the gap a lot quicker. No doubt about it. We're going to see the consequences of the last two to three years, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, if we don't make those changes. And we also have to put in many people didn't go to the doctor during that time. As you and I have talked about, mental health is going to have a huge impact in terms of our physical health as well. So if we don't do what you just talked about, be intentional in terms of our lifestyle and hold ourselves accountable too. We need to do a little bit of that. Sometimes we, you know, that that bad day turns into a, a bad week, a bad month, a bad year. And then, you know, you're waiting until much later in life till you say, oh, I'll start exercising when I retire. I've actually heard that from people. Or I'll get enough sleep when I die. People often say that, you know, flippantly. That's not going to help you. So if we're not intentional now, we're going to have many, many more problems in society 5, 10, 20 years from now. Well, the truth is we picked up some new habits during the pandemic. Like you said, you don't walk as far from your living room to your office before you were walking around going to meetings, going on the hill, going here, going different places. For a long time, you didn't do that. We picked up new habits. Zoom. Zoom wasn't even in my vocabulary. And then all of a sudden, I started hearing people say Zoom, Zoom, Zoom. I thought, what, are we really racing around? What are you talking about? And then I find out, no, there are these meetings that everybody's having. So, And they're all videos. Yes. We never did video conferencing No, before. nobody did that before. Well, I guess some people did, but I didn't. Next thing you know, you've got eight hours of Zoom meetings throughout a day and you're in a chair. So we picked up some habits. And I just want to say to people, you don't break habits. You replace one set of behaviors with a new set of incompatible behaviors. I say incompatible because it's so much easier to take on new behaviors if they're incompatible with the ones you're trying to replace. You can't sit and run at the same time. So you need to adopt a new set of behaviors that are incompatible with what you're wanting to get rid of. But you don't break habits. 
if you simply stop doing a set of behaviors and don't put something else in its place, you will default back to that behavior. Right. Same thing I talk about uh, to patients and in the book. And when we talk about food, it's as important what you include as well as what you exclude. And and that goes to your point in terms of replacing. And, and that's how you have to, to think about it. In psychology, we talk about the dead man rule. Don't give people something a dead man could do. If you say, don't do this. Well, a dead man can don't do something. <laughs> mm-hmm. You have to give them something active to do. So I don't want to tell people just don't sit around. Instead, you want to put it in the active voice and say, do get up, get outside, do walk 5,000 steps a day, do walk 8,000 steps a day, do start drinking this amount of water, do start replacing these foods with these foods, have a to-do list. I think it's also important that people realize that someday is not a day of the week. <laughs> I love that. I've That's, looked yeah. on my calendar. Yeah. Yeah. There's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. There is not someday anywhere on that calendar. So you say, well, you know, someday I'm going to get this done. No, that's the difference between a dream and a goal is a timeline and accountability. We've talked about that on New Year's resolutions. It's for so our critical. Yeah. It's so critical if you hold yourself accountable and say, by Friday, I'm going to get a new pair of walking shoes, or I'm going to find my walking shoes. I'm going to get whatever I need gathered up. And Saturday morning, I'm going to the track, or I'm going to the gym, or I'm going to the mall, or somewhere that I can get in some steps, that I can break a sweat, that I can do this. Set a goal and hold yourself accountable to that goal and timeline. And it has to be something that's measurable. Well, that's that intentional behavior that you're talking about. And then you're having that plan. That, that's what happens. People have these lofty goals. I'm going to lose 20 pounds by summer. And then you think, well, how are you going to do that? And then what are you going to do on a weekly basis? What are you going to do on a daily basis? What, what are those short-term goals? And short-term goals can mean tomorrow. What, what are you going to do tomorrow to, to get you to where you want to be, where you aspire to be? People don't realize that small changes accumulate to big results across time. You talk about in Take Control of Your Diabetes Risk that it's patterns that matter. And if people can make even small changes to their eating habits, sleeping habits, exercise habits, if people lose a half a pound a week, think about it. People lose a half a pound a week and there are 52 weeks in the year that's 26 pounds. That's huge. It is. And I say it all the time to patients. And you compound that with, as we get older, most people gain weight because your basal metabolic rate, kind of that internal furnace slows down. So you're automatically going to gain weight because you have less output just by your activities of daily living. But you know, Dr. Phil, people are like, but I need to lose weight, you know, for an upcoming wedding or for an activity. And then they only do it for that. And then often they regain the weight. Nobody wants to think about that strategy that I tell people, you know what? I care less about where you are two weeks from now 
as opposed to where you are next year, where you are five years from now, where all of your friends are going to be 20 pounds heavier and you're going to be 10 pounds less. That's success. I've seen study after study that people that go on diets gain more weight through the year than people who don't go on diets at all. It's absolutely true. It's the same thing for diet soda, that study after study has shown that people often gain weight on, on diet soda. And there's a, a lot of speculation as to why that is. Part of it is you overestimate the calories that you save from a soda. So that's why we joke you get the hamburger, the French fries, and then you say diet soda. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. click, it clicks it yeah. all out. It, it doesn't work that way. I want a banana split and a yeah. diet Coke. Yeah. So it's okay. <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> but it is about you know having that plan and holding yourself accountable. Yeah. If we can just decide, okay, we don't need to panic here and we don't need to jump tall buildings in a single bound. Absolutely right. We just need to recognize, okay, we're coming out of the pandemic and because we've been more sedentary, because we've gained some weight, because we're two years older, there's never a better time to manage our diabetes risk, to manage our overall health than right now. Right. And like I said, we don't need to panic. We just need to say, okay, let me choose four or five things that I'm going to fold in to my lifestyle pattern for the rest of this year, recognizing that the rest of this year is going to go by whether you're doing something about it or not. September's going to pass, October, mm -hmm. November, and December, whether you're doing something about it or not. So you might as well be doing something about it. And when we're talking about diabetes, you said some things in Take Control of Your Diabetes Risk that just jumped off the page at me. You said that nearly 95 million people are pre-diabetic and that 34 million people have diabetes. That's one in 10. So if you take the 95 and the 34, you're talking about 130 million people. Almost half of Americans have it. You, you know what's even more startling, Dr. Phil? Out of that 34 million that have type 2 diabetes, 20% don't even know it. Out of that 95 million, 96 million people that have prediabetes, nearly half don't even know it. So here they are, have disease type 2 diabetes, at significant risk for developing it, and they may not even know it. That's even more concern because that's going to get worse. That's 6.8 million people with a disease that puts them at risk for heart disease, cancer, amputations, blindness, that don't even know they are afflicted. Kidney disease, a, a major cause of end-stage renal disease. Diabetes is serious. And, and People don't take control of their risk for it. The complications are going to come. I find that many times with patients, they think it won't apply to them, right? I'm not going to be the one that gets it. You know, everyone that has high cholesterol doesn't get, you know, a heart attack. You know, I won't be the one that gets diabetes if I have prediabetes. You know what? Actually, you probably will because most people develop some complication. And some people don't want to know because it's like the C word. Mm-hmm. 
they, oh, I hate to go get yeah. this test. I, I call it FOFO, fear of finding out. Yeah, they don't exactly. want to know. They don't want the test. <laughs> yeah. They don't show up for the test. I've had many patients do that. That's they don't great, show up. Because that's exactly what it is. But here's the thing you do want to know this because this one you can manage, this one you can get under control, this one you can reduce the risk of complications because you can manage this disease. You know what's interesting about that, Dr. Phil, is people don't want to know because, and rightfully so, it can change their life, right? It's life-changing. And what we're talking about is that early on, you can change some aspects of your life. So it's not a shock to you later if you develop diabetes and you think, I need to, con I need to change my life. That's why people don't want to know it. I was teasing you earlier about, yeah, we do everything and it's boring. <laughs> and you're saying it really isn't. It doesn't have to be at this point. Here's the thing. If we say, all right, look, you guys are going to pound on me till I do something. And he's right. We are. So you might as well just give in. <laughs> There's no better time than right now. And we're not asking people to join the Marines. Right. <laughs> we're just mm -hmm. saying, let's make four or five changes that people can live with, and they're not going to have to feel like they're being punished or deprived. That's the important thing. Don't get depressed because we're not asking you to do things where you're going to feel punished or deprived. Let's talk about four or five things that people can do that are not punishment. They're not feeling like, oh, my life's mm -hmm. over. I can't go to a party. I can't do this. I can't do that. One you mentioned is to start drinking water instead of all the other things that you drink, which mostly would be sodas, which is probably 90% of what yeah. people drink besides water. And these frappuccino, cappuccinos, yeah. double Loaded mocha, with sugar. those mm -hmm. things, the calories on those things are astronomical, 500, right? 700, 1,200 calories. Some of those ventes, those extra large ones. Alcohol as well has a lot of calories. People don't think about it. But those frappuccinos, that's just like going and getting a milkshake, right? Absolutely. That's why people find them tasty. Yeah. <laughs> but but then what happens off it? You feel tired later on. And, and that's because your blood sugar shot up and then it came back down. And now you're hungry again. That's the problem with all of these. They just promote weight gain. And when you take in a big sugar shot like that, the net effect is it makes you hungry. That's right. Because your blood sugar goes up right away. And then it crashes down later, and then you're craving another sugar load, and you're hungry. That's what a lot of carbs do as well in terms of they don't promote what we call satiety for our listeners, that you feel full. And, and that's what protein does. That's what some healthy fats do. They, they make you feel full. That's why when you eat a handful of nuts, you get pretty satisfied easily versus that's why you can't stop with one chip. There's a lot of reasons why that is. Yeah. The sodium, but also it, you don't feel full with it. Because there is a satiety center in your brain. It's in the hypochondriasis, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. And by the way, from the time you ingest something and it gets into your stomach, absorbed and into your blood, into the satiety center is anywhere from like 8 to 12 minutes. That's right. And, and that's why you want to eat slower. Yeah. Because you want your stomach to stretch 
to send those hormones, those signals to your brain that I'm full. So that's what's tricky about, you know, what we used to call dashboard dining, eating in your car, eating super fast. Um, you know, you don't get that signal that you're full. Yeah. So that means if you're still eating when you feel full, everything you consumed in the last eight to 12 minutes, you didn't even want. <laughs> okay. You certainly yeah. didn't need it. <laughs> but seriously, if you're taking your last bite, say, oh, I'm so full, I can't take another bite. You overran by eight oh, or yeah. 12 minutes oh, because it takes that long for that without last bite to get yeah. around to you. So That's you bad. could have stopped before and gotten to the same place you are now. So eat slower is a huge part of it. But if you eliminate all of those drinks with that many calories, that alone can make a substantial difference, right? I've seen it time and time again with patients. And, and I've heard it from them. I even give the story in the book how uh, a, a woman says to me, I don't like water. <laughs> like, really? What's, what's wrong with water? I knew what she meant. She wanted that fizzy feeling. She wanted that fruity feeling. I actually convinced her to try sparkling water and then do regular water with lemon and lime. And she has lost a significant amount of weight just by beverages. Because it's we really don't think about our when we're counting calories, which I'm not a big fan of. Um, we forget that there's so many calories in, in beverages and you can just drink and drink and drink and drink and consume so many beverages because you're not getting that satiety, that feeling full signal. Yeah. Now, let's talk about coffee and unsweetened iced tea. Okay. Mm -hmm. How do those register? Good news about coffee is that it had consistently shown over time that it can help reduce the risk of diabetes, help reduce the risk of, of cancer and even heart disease. Now, what I'm talking about is regularly brewed coffee, uh, not the, you know, the mochaccinos and other ones, typically around two to three cups a day, which are the old cups that our parents might have had, right? Yeah, not, 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 <laughs> not the the super large, you know, tumblers that yeah. we're, we're drinking. And, and the reason why is that many of these um, have powerful antioxidants, and it's probably due from the coffee bean. And, and antioxidants uh, is actually a good word. So what happens, particularly as we get older, we have these things called free radicals. And as you know, I, from Washington, D.C., that sounds like it'd be a good thing. You're free yeah. and you're a radical, but, but it's actually bad because they cause clots um, and that causes strokes and, and heart disease. But antioxidants help wipe up these free radicals, and therefore you reduce your risk of these other diseases. But it's really about two to three cups. And it's the studies have been done when you haven't been loading it with sugar and milk and, and all the other things. So two to three cups of coffee a day are pretty good. And tea, just a recent study about black tea. Most of the tea has been green tea, where they've shown it also has value as well. Um, those are always going to be better choices. I drink black iced tea. I see it. And I don't put anything in it. Mm -hmm. It's just straight water and black iced tea. No sweeteners, no sugars, no artificial sweeteners, nothing. I, I saw it before you came in. I was I asked. I was going to test it <laughs> yeah. to, to, to make sure. Yeah. So that's okay. Absolutely. I get to keep that. You do. All right. Fish a couple of times a week. That's valuable in that it replaces something else that's not going to be as calorie efficient, but it also has some other values as well. And we're not talking surf and turf, right? So, right. so you add the fish. We're not talking, I had to tell a patient, we're not talking, and he was serious, fish sticks. I'm like, we're not talking fish sticks. <laughs> yeah. We're talking, you know, regular fish. And 
you know, Dr. Phil, this is kind of is my pet peeve. 20% of Americans eat fish once a week, 20%. 80% don't eat fish at all. Really? Really. They've done study after study. Most people don't eat fish. And, you know, if, too bad we can't poll our listeners to say how many have eaten fish this week. It's going to be a very small number. And, and that's used to people don't feel comfortable sometimes cooking fish, although there's so many choices nowadays. But what's great about it, as you pointed out, when you're, you're replacing it with something else, it's fewer calories. So you're automatically going to lose weight. You know, most fish is 250 to 300 calories, you know, based on its size. And then it has these powerful antioxidants and it has vitamins, it has minerals, magnesium, potassium, all the things that people want from a supplement pill, right? From that powder or pill or capsule, it's in whole foods. So that's always going to be a better choice. And, and people are fearful of cooking fish. And there's so many great recipes out there. That, that's what I really encourage people to consider. It'll make a big change. Is there a fish to stay away from? You know, I, I get that a lot. And sometimes I feel like people ask that, you know, as another excuse, like, oh, I, I can't eat fish. There's too much mercury. And, there, and there's some tuna and, and deep dwelling fish that may have a higher mercury content. But in general, it, it's as you referenced early on, it's about managing different types of risks. Having fish twice a week, you don't need to be concerned about too much mercury. You, know, you don't need to be concerned about other issues. That's going to be the healthier choice. And sometimes, Dr. Phil, it's about making the healthier choice to start off with. Not always the best choice, but a better choice. And fish is a better choice than red meat, processed meat. How about shellfish like shrimp, crab, lobster? Yeah. So they're still going to be a better choice. They're not as, as healthy as, say, a sea bass. Um, but in general, they're healthier than meat. They, some of them can have a higher sodium content than I'd like, but they're still going to be a better choice. I eat sea bass, salmon, and tuna a lot. Three excellent choices. Those are my favorites. At three excellent ones. I really like sea bass. So do I. It's light. It's not mm -hmm. fishy. And it's really good. I like how you say it's not fishy because so many people <laughs> will say to me, uh, they don't like the smell of fish that, you know, what, what do we expect fish to do? You know, it's always smell fishy, but, but I know what they meant. But it's those white fish too, the sea bass and some others that people haven't tried. You know, a lot of times people think just of salmon. That's not the only choice out there. It's, it's a great choice. But even, you know, every now and then people ask me, what about tuna fish? You know, canned tuna fish, tuna fish in a pouch, still a better choice. High in protein, high in those healthy fats, low in carbs. Nobody eats tuna fish for lunch anymore. Did you have tuna fish for lunch? I had tuna fish sandwiches sometimes. Nobody eats that anymore. They're yeah. all eating lunch meat, which is not a yeah. good choice. Yeah, not a good choice. All right, so if somebody changed what they're drinking, put fish in a couple of times a week, those would be two changes that would be substantial lifestyle pattern changes, right? Substantial. Okay, those would be big deals. They don't need to count calories. If they could just do those two things, those are lifestyle patterns that would be significant. And I bet they will come back and say, these are tasty choices. I oh, hear yeah. it time in. They say, I never knew how tasty, you know, fish could be. Or, you know, as we talked about, you know, I told you I drank so if I went back to drinking regular soda nowadays, I would be like, this feels, you know, as you said, gross, toxic. Um, we change our uh, attitude 
towards food, we, we change our lives. And exercise-wise, if we can get people to exercise smart, they don't have to exercise, like I said, they don't have to be athletes. They don't no. have to go out and start wall climbing. But if they could do some fairly high-intensity interval training, if they could, like, power walk, even 10 minutes a day, it would make a difference. You got to start somewhere. And the challenge with exercise or, you know, physical activity, it's to your point, it needs to be intentional. It needs to be structured. So often people will say to me, oh, Dr. White, you know, I'm active at work or I'm active at home. That doesn't always count. It's got to be intentional. That's right. So you've got to set that time that maybe you're going to go for a walk with your spouse. But to your point, you're going to do some power walking. So you're not going to chit-chat, you know, for 30 minutes. I I have a lot of patients be like, I walk 10,000 steps a day. Why haven't I lost any weight? I'm like, because you really haven't put any effort. You haven't made your heart rate go up a little higher. You reference high-intensity interval training. It's not for everyone, but a lot of data shows that you go 10 minutes all out, that's just as good as a 60-minute workout. It's about finding those activities you enjoy. I, I gave a talk recently, I mentioned to you at the Smithsonian, I showed a picture of exercise and swimming. And the reason why I put swimming is, for some reason, patients will always say to me, maybe I should try swimming, Dr. White. And I'll be like, do you like swimming? And they'll be like, not really, but I heard, <laughs> I heard it's good for your joints. And I'll be like, Swimming takes a lot of work. You got to usually drive somewhere. You got to change. You got to shower. You got to change and drive back. Do you have all that time? And they'll be like, no. I'll be like, choose something that you want. Choose pickleball. You know, a lot of people are into that right now. You know, I've talked about that. My kids have tried that. So many options, but you need to have that intentional effort. And ideally, you try not to let more than two days go in between. Because then you're really not doing it, right? You're not having that plan. You know, doing it once a week, that's okay to start. And and starting somewhere is important. You don't have to go all out and be like, I'm going to go, you know, to the gym five days a week now. Start off at one day if that's what works for you. Do 10 minutes of of power walking tomorrow. Do five push-ups a day to start. And I can't tell you how many patients I've had that couldn't do one push-up. Yeah. Three months, six months later, they're doing 25 in the morning, 25 at night. And you know what? They're proud about it. No one ever feels bad about being physically active. No one ever says, oh, I wish I didn't go to the gym. I wish I didn't go for a run. What do they say? I feel great because that releases those powerful endorphins. But you got to find time. And choose something that you like. Like you said, if you ever see me running through neighborhood, (laughs) you need to lasso the person behind me, because I'm not jogging, I'm escaping. <laughs> and whoever's behind me is chasing me. But you play tennis, right? I do, every yeah, day. And you enjoy it. And I enjoy that. But jogging, my knees don't like it. I don't like, I don't jogging like it. Either. It's not for me. But I'll go out and kill myself on the tennis court. And with stress tests and all, they say, get your heart rate to like 138 or 140 for 20 seconds, four times during your workout, and that would be great. I wear the monitors and stuff, Mm -hmm. and I'll get it to that level for like 45 minutes during the workout. So I know I'm I'm getting plenty. Because you chose something that you enjoy, and that is pleasurable. And and we can't look at uh, being active as, you know, a chore, because then 
people aren't going to want to do it. And, and that's that mindset and that's that accountability. Choose something that is is reasonable that you can do and and fit it in your you know your time frame and your, your lifestyle. And there's so many choices nowadays. Yeah. So that would be a third thing. We talked about what they drink, substituting fish in a couple of days, then doing that intentional exercise yep. mm -hmm. a couple of times. And I'll suggest a fourth one that's kind of off the wall, but I think it is really helpful for people to clean up their environment. If you go into people's kitchen and you take out all the contraband, you go in there and get rid of all of the cookies, the easily ingestible high sugar foods that people tend to snack on late at night or whatever, it's not enough to just clean up the environment. You have to put things in there that are positive alternatives because people get hungry. And when you get hungry, you're going to want something to eat. But if you cut some vegetables up mm -hmm. in there that you keep in water, celery, carrots, whatever, just something that if you would kill to get something to eat and you have some healthy alternatives in there, that will become the behaviors that replace the other habit. So if you go in and clean up your environment and replace it with positive alternatives, look, you can get in the car and drive to the convenience store and get a box of cookies or chips or whatever, but you're much less likely to do that than you are to just walk in your kitchen and graze. Because we're lazy some days yeah. <laughs> we don't want to drive. I'll go one step further, Dr. Phil, and, and I'll remind people, stop buying them, right? And, and we're guilty of that at home sometimes, too. And, and, and people will say, well, I bought it for my kids. I bought it for my spouse. They don't Healthy need it either. That's right. It, it's a family affair. And that's sometimes why people fail, because one partner is trying to be healthy and the other one isn't. And that can create tensions and challenges, too. And it, it's really a family affair. And you'd be doing better to not just clean out that environment, but then be like, oh, hey, you don't need to go buy it and have it there. Because if it's yeah. there, you're going to eat it. I think cleaning that up and not replenishing it, that would be a great environmental control. You're now programming your environment to support your goal. I think that's really important. I think if people would write down, even for a few days, what they're actually consuming, they would be stunned. <laughs> I, I ask patients to do that every now and then. I've done it too. Uh, <laughs> Very Just for myself. And you have to, you ignore the first two days because people like, you know, try to do better because they want to, you know, be, get a good report card. But then you look at it and you'd be like, because I've had so many people be like, I only eat salads. I'd be like, you don't only eat salads. And then you realize that, hey, you're doing that nighttime noshing. You're having snacks in between. Uh, every now and then I've been eating these butter cookies. <laughs> Stop getting them. Uh, but people then when they sit down and look at it with me and say, oh, whoa, I really was eating a lot. Not usually on the three scheduled meals, but it's, it's the stuff in between and at night. Yeah. It's what you can eat when you break off a piece of cookie yeah. that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't <laughs> make right. it okay. That's right. If we get people mindful of diabetes, what are they likely to notice that would be a tip off to them that, hey, this really is something I might need to check on. What are the symptoms they're going to notice first? 
Some of the early warning signs are that you're starting to urinate a lot, a lot more often than you think. And the average for most people is about seven times a day, just in case they're wondering. Because what's happening is your high sugar load, that stain in your bloodstream is pulling out water from your cells. So you're, you're peeing a lot. And then in conjunction with that, you become thirsty a lot. I saw a patient uh, about a month and a half ago that she came in, her blood sugar was in the 400s, and she said to me, she's so thirsty, she almost, you can't make this up, wanted to drink out of the toilet bowl. She's just so thirsty. That's because she's losing so much water. She's becoming dehydrated because of the high sugar loads. So when people tell me that they're thirsty a lot, I get a little bit concerned. I'll tell you, a, a bad sign that it's progressed significantly is what we call the neuropathies, the tingling, the numbness. Once you experience that, usually you're diagnosed with diabetes and that's hard to reverse. Our medications aren't great, but that thirsty uh, feeling that you're having more often, that urinating, um, you know, the excess weight gain, because what's happening is, think about it, uh, you're using insulin to bring glucose into your cells, which is your energy. In type two, when you have that resistance, you're not getting that glucose into your cells, that energy. So what do you do? You actually eat more because you're trying to get energy because your insulin is still working somewhat. So you start to gain a lot of weight. And, and some of that can be directly due to diabetes as well as causing diabetes. So those are some of the early warning signs. Let's talk about how important sleep is. Sleep is something over the last 10 years that we've learned the importance of. And I'll be honest, during residency, and, and as you know, in, in healthcare, it's always almost like a badge of honor, right? Oh, I only need four hours of sleep, five hours of sleep. Nobody feels good after not getting a good night's sleep, whether it's, you know, a, a crying baby or a sick uh, spouse. Nobody feels good. There's a reason why we don't let pilots <laughs> right, fly planes when they're sleepy because we know that they're going to make mistakes. And what do you think is happening internally to your body? Your cells are making mistakes. But sleep is always the thing that we're always willing to get rid of first. I'll do it another time. Or there's this imaginary sleep bank right, <laughs> that will catch up on the weekend, deposit some extra sleep, and will benefit. Sleep really is critical to overall health. Yeah. Now, what's good? Is it seven hours, six, eight? What do people need to try to target? You know, for most people, it's seven to nine hours of sleep. Now, there is a genetic variant where people only need four to five hours of sleep, but that is extremely rare and most people don't have it. They think they do, but they, they don't. It's general seven to nine hours, but it's not just the quantity, Dr. Phil. It's also that quality, right? You want that what we call restorative sleep. So if you weren't feeling well, you got the flu, you're not feeling great, what's the first thing that you do? You go to sleep because you instinctively know that's going to help your body recharge. If you're not getting that sleep on a daily basis, then it's a problem. And we all have trackers, you know, rings. I'm calling the smart jewelry, the watches, the rings, the others. You can monitor your sleep and you can see how you're doing. And we need to make sleep a greater priority. Yeah, I think if people would really 
pay attention to seeing how much they're actually getting on a regular basis, it would have a profound impact on how they feel because if it's erratic and if they're sleeping too much, catching up on weekends, that can leave them groggy. Then during the week, they're not getting enough. Again, you talk so much about pattern and patterns across time. I just think that we're really not focusing enough on sleep. It just gives people that regeneration time Mm -hmm. that they need, that reparative time that they need. We we don't put an importance on it, and and we need to change that. I loved your point about too much sleep. We forget about that. That's often a harbinger, a sign of something serious going on, whether it's depression or thyroid disease or other issues. I wish doctors would talk to people more about their sleep and how well they're sleeping and the quality of their sleep, because we are having an issue in terms of challenges with sleep for many people, partly due to the stress that they're under. Um, and, and that's not going to go away if, as you point out, you're not intentional about trying to solve it. It just doesn't get better. Most things don't over time, but we tend to think somehow they will. No, unless we prioritize them, they don't. I know that a lot of people, when they do get in the throes of type 2 diabetes, there are energy deficits and they start having emotional reactions to it. There's also a fair amount of judgment. I think when people get a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, they do feel that people start judging them, thinking they're lazy, that they're kind of slugs, that they don't take care of themselves, et cetera, et cetera. There is a certain amount of mental emotional baggage that comes with it as well. I think it's important for people to be intentional about that as well and recognize, look, this is a disease and I am taking affirmative steps to manage this. This is something that if I'm acknowledging it and I'm doing the things that I need to to minimize this disease and its impact in my life, then I can take pride in being an active manager and doing the things that I need to do because there's a stigma tied to type 2 diabetes that's not tied to certain other diseases. That's right. And there's still a lot of misunderstanding about it. And I talk about in, in the book, you know, this concept of diabetes distress that you're referencing. And there's also depression, it, which it goes both ways. If you're depressed, you often may engage in unhealthy behaviors. You may not take medication. You don't go see the doctor. And if you develop diabetes, that can change your life in many ways and, and cause a distress. I really see a pattern that's similar to heart disease. So when patients have a heart attack, you know, that kind of first time frame early on is like, okay, they're going to clean out that pantry as you just talked about. They're going to, you know, start to do a cardiac rehab and, and really make those lifestyle changes. But then it's six months later. It's a year later when they get depressed about it, right? Thinking, I'm not seeing as many changes anymore because, right, because it's incremental over time or they're tired about it or, or they haven't thought through enough about this intentional changes. Uh, and, and then they're starting to struggle with it. And then it's the people around them who may not understand it and are confused and treat them differently, Dr. Phil. And that's what bothers them as well. Well, the adrenaline fades. When you first get into it, you go, okay, 
mm-hmm. and pumped up. I'm going to do this, but then the adrenaline fades, and then you're just left with the problem and the management. It is a slow turn, but that's why I say I really want people to recognize, particularly in health management in general, disease management in particular, diabetes management specifically, small changes add up to significant results across time. It's that pattern. Uh, A patient the other day who wasn't really making the changes that they had before you know, came in, their, their blood sugar is now back in, in you know, an abnormal range. And I was like, well, what, what's going on? And she said to me, you know how it is, Dr. White, life gets in the way. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Like, I, I knew what she meant. And my point to her was, this is your priority, right? It's not that you have to change everything all at once, but w- what is more important than your own health. But that's the mindset, Dr. Phil, that sometimes we have to help people think through and empower them, right? That they can make these changes and they're going to feel good about it. It's not, you know, something I'm taking away. We're actually giving them things. But it's not acute. So if it was an earache, they'd be saying, okay, I got to do something about this. It was an ankle they couldn't walk on. But this is something that's insidious, you know, it's not burning bright every single day. And so it's awful easy for days to turn into weeks and weeks turn into months and then months turn into a more serious problem that they could have managed if they had dealt with it at the time. Or they'll say, I'll just take a pill or I'll take more insulin and then I can have that cake. It's like, okay, how did we get to this point? Yeah. And, and again, it goes back to empowering people with good information, helping them along the process. And let's be fair, doctors aren't always good about talking about prevention, managing symptoms. And, and we tend to focus on that broken ankle, that uh, you know, heart attack, and, and less so about how we got to managing chronic disease. So people know, and maybe they have some blood work, their last blood work, maybe their doctor hasn't discussed it with them. What is the normal range for a 40 to 50-something-year-old male, female? What's the normal range for their glucose? And there can be different tests, sure. and, and you can find them online. A lot of times we order something called a hemoglobin A1C. Sometimes people call it glycosylated hemoglobin. It's looking at your blood sugar really for about the past three months because that's the length of the red blood cell, and they're looking at how well your blood cell is glycosylated. So normally we want to see a normal, you know, A1C, like 5.7%. It's a percentage. Uh, And we give the definition of diabetes typically around 6.5%. And in between would be considered prediabetes. And then a lot of times we can do a fasting blood sugar. We could do it on both of us, you know, right now. And and really we want to see it below 100 to be normal. Above 126 is considered, you know, the diabetes range and anything in between is considered prediabetes. And these numbers have changed a little over time, just Mm -hmm. to to be fair, because we're trying to catch it earlier on. There's something also called an oral glucose tolerance test. I've only done it a few times in practice. We have to give a sugar load and then, you know, you measure and then look at it. But glycosylated hemoglobin and then the fasting plasma glucose is the the most standard test. And, And you could go in today and get those tests done, and you can know by the end of the day 
whether you have diabetes. Certainly if it's abnormal, we're going to repeat it because sometimes people aren't truly fasting when mm-hmm. we say they're fasting if they're measuring that. Um, and, and that's important to point out. What's frustrating, Dr. Phil, is I've had a lot of people, they don't come back. It's to your point. They, they don't, they don't want to know. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. Well, I think we've talked about this in a way that makes it understandable and manageable. The book is Take Control of Your Diabetes Risk. It's by John White, MD. You can find lots of answers in this book. And it's interesting. It's not only telling you what the disease is, it's telling you what to do to manage your risk. And we've tried to give you some common sense thinking about it today. Hopefully, it's motivated you about it. And let me tell you, everything that we've talked about today concerning taking control of your diabetes risk fits for managing your overall health. If you have cancer, for example, you would add avoid known carcinogens, obviously. If it was heart disease, there would be specific things for your heart. But managing your health, managing the disease process, everything we've talked about today generalizes to managing disease process in general, right? Absolutely. Managing stress, getting good sleep, taking time to get intentional exercise, controlling your diet, all of those things are consistent to managing all of the chronic diseases. Because most chronic disease is caused by lifestyle. Exactly. And that's, if you can control your lifestyle, you can control your risk in most conditions. Yeah. I know it's heard so much that it's probably lost its meaning. It's become so cliche, but early detection and early intervention is still powerful, powerful, powerful in determining the outcome of your disease process. So don't be in denial. If you don't know, find out. The sooner you know, the more options you have of controlling it and the less damage it's likely to do to you. It's much easier to avoid the damage than it is to reverse it once it's happened. So hopefully we can do it. Well, I hope you will come back and continue to talk about this, talk about cancer, talk about heart disease, talk about all of these things, because I think it is a safe place for people to get really solid, evidence-based information about this. And of course, WebMD is the go-to place for all of this. Thanks for having these conversations. It's it's information people need. Well, you and I talk about other things that are happening in society and stress. And I appreciate you sharing your platform and talking about mental health, mental illness, mental challenges that we're facing right now in this country and in this society. You've been great about talking about some of those things. We just had an op-ed piece in USA Today talking about this work from home situation. It's had a great response and lots of pickup. If you haven't seen it, you can find it on USA Today website. Just query the two of us on working from home and it'll be in there. I know we'll keep talking about these issues So y'all have been great partners on getting that information out as well. Well, thank you. So I look forward to talking some more in the future. Dr. White, thank you so much. Always great to be with you, Dr. Phil. I appreciate it. We'll talk soon. 